just me, but I need to re be reminded of God's goodness. When I see things around uh, uh, um, my life, when I get phone calls, um, I just have to remind myself that he is good. And so many times in the Old Testament, we talk about this God of who's vengeful, who is um, angry. And then in the New Testament, we get this loving God. Uh, but what we've seen the last few weeks as we're working our way through the minor prophets before Easter is that he is a good God. He is gracious. He is long-suffering. I mean, he, you remember a couple weeks ago in Jonah. Uh, he, he comes and, and he, he's not even excited about it, but he has, five, he has a five-word sermon. And the Ninevites, who are some of the cruelest, um, but most vengeful people who have ever walked this earth, they hear it and they respond. They they um. Uh, re repent and God is gracious to them I mean, it's, it's not even the it's not even his people uh, the nation of Israel but he he hears their prayers and he hears their repentance and even though they are they're 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 um just vile people at least their their history and the way that they they take out people who are their enemies even in that place when they repent God forgives and he heals, and he saves. And then last week in Hosea, Hosea is uh, uh, my story, your story in miniature. This, this, this man who goes and finds Gomer, and who is unfaithful to him, and unfaithful to him, and unfaithful to him, and he pursues, and he pursues, and he pursues, and then he buys back what is already rightly his. And that's the God of the universe with me. I sin, and I sin, and I sin, and he pursues, and he pursues, and he forgives, and he forgives. He is good, and he is gracious, and he's kind. And we see that again this morning in the story of Joel. Very, very quickly, I just want to run through this. We're going to see God's graciousness and his goodness on repeat this morning. John, Joel chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Joel opens up with a, a description of this gigantic locust plague that seems to have taken place shortly before he writes this book. And he says this, what, is, what the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts have eaten. And what the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts has eaten. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a locust, I'm not even sure I have, but they really look a lot like grasshoppers, but, they're, but, but they have wings. It's almost like they're the air force of the grasshopper kingdom. And they destroy everything. They, de they destroy everything. A, a swarm can, can have between four and eight billion locusts. Here's what a swarm looks like. That's what a swarm looks like. And they eat everything in its path. And then as soon as they eat everything that's green, they start to eat things that are not green. Like the bark on trees. And then they move to a different location. This is what a tree looks like before the locust hits. Here's what it looks like after the locust hits. I mean, it just eats everything. And Joel uses this locust um, invasion, this, this locust plague, to illustrate and to warn the nation of Israel and us 
Here's what he is illustrating. Locust uses the, 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 the locust plague um, to illustrate what sin looks like in our lives. Like, locusts, like the locust plague, the devastating power of sin is total. Gradually destroying everyone and everything in its path. Maybe you've heard the statement, sin takes you farther than you ever wanted to go, keeps you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and the price is going to be higher than you ever wanted to pay. That is so true. And that's what the, the locust illustrates. We do not play with sin. We don't play, we don't, we don't dabble in it and then think we can just kind of put it back on the shelf whenever we're ready to be done with it. It invades our lives and then takes over our lives is what the, the, the prophet Joel is saying. And it leads to our destruction. The locust plague is also a warning. It's a warning to the nation of Israel, specifically. And he's warning of coming judgment. One much more terrible than the locusts that they've already endured. God is going to send an army, an invading army, to take over the nation of Israel because of their sin. Listen to how Joel prophesies about this coming invasion in the terms of locust plague. For a nation has come up on, has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it's fa- it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Jump down to Joel chapter 2 into verse 3. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run. As, they, uh, as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackle, crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. So unless Israel repents, this invasion is coming, and it's going to destroy them. It's going to make the locust plague look like child's play. But we see God's compassion on repeat in the next verses. Verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. He's he's saying, I want you to come and I want you to repent. I mean, my heart is before you, God. I'm not just trying to change my actions a little bit. Like, I want to be a new person. I want to repent from a broken heart. Into verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. He is a merciful God. Look what God says he'll do if they repent. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and have a blessing behind him. This seems like a question, almost like he's saying, who knows? If you repent, who knows? Maybe God, maybe God will, will, will forgive and turn and relent. But if you look back up in verse 12, and if we had time, we would go back to it. We just don't. But in verse 12, God is the one who is speaking. So he's the one who's posing this question. Who knows? Maybe if you're a dad, maybe you've done this before with your kids. They'll say, you know, I, I wish I could have some ice cream, or I wish I could do this, or go here. And, and in my house, sometimes when my kids say that, I'll say, well, well, who knows? If you ask that, it might happen. Because I want to give you good things. I want to give you things that you enjoy. I want you to, I want to go to good places to eat with you. I want to, I want to have experiences with you. And I'm a broken dad. 
Like, I'm not, even, I'm not even a good dad on many days. And we have a perfect heavenly father who wants to do the same thing for us. And he says, if you will come and you will repent, I will relent. And I won't, and I'll show mercy and grace towards you. Here's what I put in my notes. Mercy is the withholding from us what we deserve. Grace is pouring out on us goodness that we don't deserve. And he said, both are true for those who come and repent. I'm not going to give you the invasion that you deserve. I'm going to relent from that, but I'm also going to give you a blessing. I'm going to give you a blessing. He keeps going. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. This is the blessing that he's talking about. I'm going to give you grain, wine, and oil, and then maybe the greatest blessing of all. I'm going to, I'm, you're going to be satisfied. Like everything that you have, you're going to be satisfied with it. You're not going to need new ones. You're not going to need the latest version. You're not going to see what everybody else has and then wish you had that. You're going to be satisfied with what you have. What a blessing that he gives to us. And then he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. This is an amazing promise. This is a retroactive blessing. God is promising Israel, I'm going to go back and make up for you and for your country, what sin has destroyed. You remember this was true with Job. It wasn't because of sin, but because we live in a broken world, life was taken from him. And God retroactively blessed what he lost seven times over. I've seen this in people's lives. I've seen this in people's lives. Uh, ladies who were, who, who were married to guys who were not faithful who, who did not treat them with dignity, did not treat with, them with respect, who left them. And then God graciously gives back what has been taken from them. I've seen this with people who, who could not get away from alcohol or drugs. And then by grace, they repent, and God, God uh, takes that desire away, and then he gives them family. He, he takes back years that were lost in prison. Like retroactively blessing... Only a good and gracious and merciful God does that. And that is who we worship this morning. I don't have time. i got to run to the very end. Verse 32 of chapter 2, it says this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Paul actually quotes from this verse in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, and it says this. For those uh, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. His greatest blessing of all, saving people who don't deserve it. Giving them a home with him in heaven. Even though in and of ourselves, left to ourselves, we are wretched sinners. In Romans, he, he says, he uses that word call as a synonym for believe and, to tr and trust, or believe or trust. You will believe, you will trust. He will save. He promises it in his word. I came across this this week, and I close with it. It's been said that God's purpose for having two thieves on the cross 
was so that one could be saved so that no one might despair. No one would believe that their sin outreaches God's grace. But only one is saved so that none might presume. That we would presume that God must. That he is, that, that we, he, he owes it to us. Who will God save? Every person who repents. Calls on the name of the Lord. And trusts in him. God graciously, graciously saves. That's the God that we worship this morning. He saves, he is good, he is loving, and he is gracious. He wants a relationship with us. And that's why we praise his name. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would answer according to your will. I thank you that you are good, that you are gracious. I have to preach this to myself every single day because the world says otherwise. They, they mock you, they discount you, and yet you reign supreme. And in spite of our, our questioning, in spite of the circumstances, you are gracious to us, you are good to us, and we thank you for it. In your name we pray.